Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 692 for the 8th of May, 2020. This week, for almost 20 years, TechSmith's Camtasia has been the go-to application for instructional videos. The 2020 version of Camtasia strengthens its capabilities for that market and also adds more powerful video editing functions. In short circuits, depending on how often you send images from Lightroom to Photoshop for pixel-level editing, making a small change in the workflow could save a substantial amount of disk space. Scammers have spotted a big opening because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but many of the old subject lines still attract mouse clicks that lead to trouble. In spare parts, only on the website, Google and Apple say they want to work together to provide technical assistance for identifying people who may have been exposed to COVID-19. If you lose access to your Google account, there are automated recovery procedures that are easy. That's good because recovering an account manually isn't easy or fast. And 20 years ago, many of us might have been excited by a $180 device that played CDs and DVDs full of MP3 files. Suddenly, we could take a lot of music with us wherever we went. Camtasia has been the preferred application for nearly 18 years by those who need to create video documentation for computer users, but in recent years, TechSmith has pushed the application into other areas. Snagit was TechSmith's first product, a screen capture utility that the company introduced 30 years ago. Camtasia expanded Snagit's ability to capture still screens and gave documentation specialists a way to capture full-motion screen sequences with narration that was captured live. Starting several years ago, Camtasia began to acquire sophisticated editing capabilities while maintaining a user interface that's easier for users who don't have a background in video production. Camtasia's export process, which video experts know as rendering, requires little or no knowledge of video formats, video codecs, and a myriad of other potentially confusing topics. TechSmith released Camtasia 2020 on the 28th of April, and the company provided a copy of the application for me to work with in mid-April. There are four new or improved features that make upgrading to the 2020 version well worth the $99 fee and a variety of other tweaks that are useful, too. New users will pay $249 for a new license. So let's take a look. Perhaps my favorite new feature is favorites. Although the interface makes Camtasia one of the easiest video editors available, that doesn't mean it's always easy to find exactly what you're looking for. There are annotations, animations, transitions, behaviors, cursor effects, and other functions that are all used to improve the quality of the video. Each section has several components, and each component can be modified with a variety of settings. Users often have preferred components with specific settings, and until now, creating a 
preferred transition or a preferred annotation required starting with the appropriate category, drilling down to the desired effect, and then modifying the settings. This had to be done every time the effect was used in a video. In short, it's something that gets old fast. Now, users can add a star to their most frequently used tools and effects with all of the settings and save them in a favorites category for quick access. This is going to be a huge time saver. Templates have been around for quite a while, but they were fairly basic until now. In Camtasia 2020, users can download advanced templates from TechSmith or create their own, or download a template from TechSmith, modify it, and then save it as their own. As helpful as this will be for users who may be the only documentation specialist at a small company, it will be a tremendous improvement for companies that have a documentation department. The templates can contain intros and endings for video projects and placeholders complete with transition effects for video segments. Templates are a great way to ensure consistency from one video to the next, regardless of which staff member works on it. And templates aren't limited to just those provided by TechSmith, even though they're very well made. Users can create their own templates that they can then use for new projects or that they can have other team members use for their projects. The templates provided by TechSmith demonstrate one of Camtasia's new features, magnetic tracks. A placeholder for a video segment might show in the template's timeline as being two minutes long, but what if the actual video segment that replaces the placeholder is just 55 seconds, a little less than a minute? Until now, the user would have needed to manually adjust every additional segment on the timeline to close up the space. Now, closing up the spaces isn't a very time-consuming process. It's quick and easy, but tiny gaps can remain between segments if you're not careful. On playback, these gaps display as a black screen that are very distracting. Fixing all the little gaps can be both time-consuming and annoying. The solution is the magnetic track function that can be activated for any track. When the function is active, Camtasia automatically removes all the gaps between all the clips on that timeline track. Replacing a placeholder with a clip that's longer or shorter is no longer a problem. Camtasia can import and export template packages for use by other team members or to use as a starting point for similar projects that an individual user is working on. Packages can include templates, favorites, library items, specific colors for branding, and all kinds of other preferences into a single file that can then be shared or reused. As with templates, packages can be used to ensure consistency among users and throughout a range of projects. The import and export functions are on the file menu. And probably the most impressive new feature, track mats. Track mats bring transparency effects to Camtasia. The feature makes it possible for users to create both static and animated masks that control how the contents of other tracks are displayed. For example, a layer that contains text could be used as a mat to display a video or still image through the letters while suppressing the background image elsewhere. This is an uncommonly sophisticated effect for an application such as Camtasia. 
At many businesses now give users more than a single screen. Dual monitors, or even more than dual monitors, are popular with anyone who needs to work with an application that has a complex interface. And even Camtasia's less complicated video production interface can be busy. As the user displays more and more tools, the workspace for the video itself, which TechSmith calls the canvas, becomes smaller. Camtasia 2020 has taken the first of what I hope will be many steps to give users the ability to rework the interface to suit themselves. The timeline can now be moved to a second monitor. It's a two-step process on the menu, View, Timeline, Detach Timeline, or just press Control-3. Then drag the timeline over to your second monitor. The user can restore the timeline to the main monitor by pressing Control-3 again, or revisiting the menu with View, Timeline, Attach Timeline. There's a lot to like in the 2020 version of Camtasia, so five cats, TechSmith's remarkable Camtasia receives some dramatic improvements. Improved capabilities to share templates and packages will enhance consistency. Placeholders make templates even easier to use and more powerful. User interface enhancements recognize the growing use of multiple monitors. Track mats will probably be overworked for a while as users react to the shiny new object, but eventually the feature will be selected only when it's appropriate. So there's a lot to like here. You'll find additional details on the TechSmith website. There's a link there from the TechBiter Worldwide website this week, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. Short Circuits, a recent article on Petapixel described a bug that results in some photographs taking far more space than they should in Lightroom. Making one change in how you use the program could save tens of megabytes per photo, maybe more. The Petapixel article, and there's a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website, describes a situation that is common for professional photographers, perhaps less so for amateurs. If you never select Edit in Photoshop from Lightroom, you're not affected. Those who round-trip raw photos from Lightroom to Photoshop and back could see significant changes. To understand what's happening and why, we need to look at how the process works. When you're editing a photo in Lightroom and need the capabilities offered only by Photoshop, the photo can be sent to Photoshop in Photoshop format, a PSD file, or as a TIFF file. The PSD format might seem to be the logical choice, but generally it's not, particularly if you use the camera's proprietary RAW format. Sending the file to Photoshop in TIFF format should allow the use of file compression. And you may note I placed a little emphasis there on should. The edit in Adobe Photoshop 2020 setting defaults will specify Pro Photo RGB color space, 16-bit color depth, 
240 pixel per inch resolution, and no compression. The color space and color depth settings are correct, and resolution is meaningless. But compression should be set to zip. Unfortunately, if you do that, it doesn't work. Photoshop can't open RAW files directly. If you send it a RAW file, it'll be processed in Adobe Camera Raw first. But you probably want to retain the changes you made in Lightroom, because Lightroom is actually just Adobe Camera Raw with a different interface and a database connection. A TIFF file will retain all the adjustments you've made in Lightroom, but the files are several times the size of a RAW or DNG digital negative file. A 30 megabyte RAW or DNG file could be 10 times that size by the time the image has made the round trip to Photoshop and has come back as a TIFF. Specifying zip compression for the TIFF file makes the resulting file a lot smaller. Or at least it should. The problem is the setting is not honored and the file comes back to Lightroom as a gigantic TIFF. If you use this process Rarely. The impact will be relatively small. But if you send a lot of images to Photoshop for pixel-level editing, the effect is going to be substantial. Many photographers use Lightroom for the entire editing process because it is a powerful program that can make a lot of good overall changes to the image. Cropping, leveling, exposure, color temperature, tint, contrast, clarity, vibrance and saturation, hue, saturation, luminance changes, split toning, sharpening and noise control, lens correction, vignetting. These are all handled very well in Lightroom. Lightroom also handles minor blemish removal, but detailed changes do call for Photoshop. You'll see an example on the TechMiner Worldwide website. I have a photograph that I took on the 16th of May when maintaining absolutely proper social distancing at all times, I captured some images around the city. One of the photographs shows gasoline selling for $1.61, but I wanted to clean up some of the distracting elements. I have arrows pointing to those on the TechBiter Worldwide website. So I selected Edit in Adobe Photoshop 2020. I brought the image back to Lightroom after cleaning up the service station sign and some of the gas pumps base in Photoshop. But the DNG file, which was 23 megabytes, returned as a 247 megabyte TIFF. Now, the more layers you add to a file during editing, the larger the returned file will be. I have seen some returned TIFFs that have ballooned to nearly 500 megabytes. Files are usually returned to Lightroom from Photoshop by choosing Save from the menu or just pressing Ctrl-S. Because this process doesn't honor zip compression, the returned file is needlessly large. The fix is pretty easy. Choose Save As from the menu and change the image compression from None to Zip. The resulting file is still going to be large, but it's going to be less than 200 megabytes probably. You might be tempted to return the file to Lightroom as a JPEG file. If you do that, it will be much, much smaller, perhaps 10 to 15 megabytes. But then further editing in Lightroom will be substantially limited. So if you are absolutely certain that you'll never want to change cropping, leveling, exposure, color, temperature, tint, contrast, clarity, vibrance, and saturation, or any of the other adjustments, then JPEG is just fine. However, I have never felt entirely comfortable with that choice. As for the little bug, well, Adobe will probably fix it at some point. Until that happens, this is a quick and easy way to save some disk space.
was never a shortage of scams, but large events bring out the creeps in large numbers, and the COVID-19 pandemic is clearly a large event. You doubtless know that no Nigerian prince will send you several million dollars. You know that the long-lost heir who left you millions when he died is a fake. You know that some big-box store will not send you a coupon for $100 if you forward their message to 100 people. And you know that nobody in Ukraine wants you to help exfiltrate millions of dollars. Anybody who falls for those scams these days has earned whatever misfortune ensues. It is illegal to send unsolicited text messages. That, of course, doesn't bother criminals, and many fraudulent text messages are linked directly to the pandemic. Unsolicited text messages should be treated the same way we treat unsolicited emails, with extreme care and suspicion. The Federal Trade Commission says scammers have crowded onto the COVID-19 pandemic bandwagon with absolutely no regard for social distancing. No, the FTC did not mention social distancing. I added that part. I was being sarcastic. The crooks are using fake text messages, emails, social media posts, and even complete websites to help them steal money directly or by fooling people into revealing personal financial information. Ads that promote prevention, a treatment, or a cure should be immediately suspect. If somebody has actually developed a prevention, treatment, or a cure, you can be sure that every legitimate news agency on the planet will headline it. It won't be a secret. It won't be promoted in Facebook, and it won't come from an email correspondent you've never heard of. And now there are economic stimulus payments that people are waiting for, or unemployment checks. Scammers have deployed robocalls, texts, and emails that promise to help you get the money, or claim to offer other grants or assistance. These scammers almost always require an advance fee, possibly paid with a gift card, and then you'll never hear from them again. The FTC says that people don't need to do anything to obtain the stimulus check or a direct deposit. As long as you filed taxes for 2018 or 2019, the federal government likely has the information it needs to send your money. Those who receive Social Security payments or railroad retirement payments will receive their money eventually, but it'll be later. They're not included in the initial group. And all the usual warnings apply here. Government agencies and legitimate businesses will not request identifying information via a text message. When you receive a phony text message, just delete it. Don't click a link. Don't call the number that's listed there. And don't reply to the message in any way. That merely lets the scammers know that their message got through to you. Know Before, a company that provides training for companies by sending phishing emails and texts to employees. They do this so that gullible workers can be identified and coached. Recently listed the top 10 email subjects that fooled workers. Here are the top five from that list. Password check required immediately. A delivery attempt was made. Deactivation of email address in process. And, of course, the user's email address would be listed there. New food trucks coming to a company's name. Updated employee benefits. 
Some of those subject lines, perhaps most of them, have been superseded by stimulus or COVID-19 ploys. No before says that nearly half of all social media-related phishing emails to business employees imitated LinkedIn messages. That's likely because emails that appear to be legitimately coming from a professional network have higher believability. And this is even worse because many LinkedIn users have their accounts tied to their corporate email address. Paranoia is not always a bad thing. There's no need to worry about fake subject lines in spare parts when you visit the website. This week, you'll find these articles. Google and Apple say they want to work together to provide technical assistance for identifying people who may have been exposed to COVID-19. If you lose access to your Google account, there are automated recovery procedures that are easy. That's good, because recovering an account manually isn't easy or fast. And 20 years ago, many of us might have been excited by a $180 device that played CDs and DVDs full of MP3 files. Suddenly, we could take a lot of music with us wherever we went. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.